I'd like to turn, if you have your Bibles, that's really good. If, uh, somebody asked me once, which is a, what's your favorite season? I think my favorite season in church is autumn, because that's when you hear the leaves rustling. But unfortunately, we don't hear the leaves rustling anymore because people don't bring their Bibles to church. <laughs> uh, so you just hear pings on their devices. But um, if you have a Bible, it would be great to turn to those two chapters, chapter 8 and chapter 9 of uh, 2 Corinthians. What's the difference between Christianity and, uh, and other religions? Uh, C.S. Lewis was once asked that at a conference on comparative religions. What is Christianity's unique contribution? Oh, he said, that's easy. It's grace. See, maybe you thought that grace was something you said before meals, if you're religious. But grace is actually what makes Christianity different to every other world religion. It's the heartbeat of the Christian religion. And, and this letter, like all the other New Testament letters, is just full of grace. It starts with, with grace, with a greeting in chapter 1. Paul says, grace to you. And it finish, he finishes in chapter 16, I think it's chapter 13, rather. Uh, and he says, grace be with you. And, and here in this chapter, he gives us a definition of grace in this lovely verse. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, he says, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Now, that has to be a memory verse. We should memorize that verse. There are some verses that we should really carry around with us all the time. And it's a great Christmas text, too, isn't it? But the context is interesting. Because what's happening here in these chapters is this. Paul is taking up a collection. That's what the whole of these two chapters is about, the collection. Actually, the collection in, in the New Testament is a very important uh, event, uh, which we probably don't appreciate quite as much as we should. And there are three main parties involved in the taking up of this collection. There are the Corinthians, who Paul is writing to. There are, there are the Macedonians, who Paul points us to as an example. And, of course, then there is Jesus, who is the supreme uh, example. So I want us to look at the... First of all, I want us to look at those three main players, the Corinthians, the Macedonians, and Jesus. And then I've got four points by way of application for us, which we'll come on to as we close. So let's look, first of all, then, at the Corinthians. Now, you know who the Corinthians are or were. Uh, they're the people down south. Uh, they're the sophisticated city dwellers. Corinth was a cosmopolitan, multicultural seaport. And what Paul is doing here is, is coaxing the Corinthians to give. He's taking up a collection around uh, the Mediterranean from the, the churches that he's planted, the Gentile churches. Uh, he's gathering up a collection for the church in Jerusalem, which is suffering from... Uh, I just saw the screen then... <laughs> So, suffering from famine and persecution. I think Caleb pressed the button too quickly, but it doesn't matter. I'll leave it there. <laughs> now, we, we don't miss the significance of this. See, this collection is a demonstration of what the gospel does. It rips down the barriers that divide us culturally, socially, ethnically. In Christ, there's neither Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. We're all one in Christ Jesus. Now, that's, that's, 
That's a nice sentiment for a fridge magnet. That's a great slogan for a Keswick convention. But it has to be more than that. And what Paul is saying here to the Corinthians is, well, let's put that to the test, shall we? Now is your chance to put your money where your mouth is. And he says to the Corinthians there in verse 10, 12 months ago you promised to give and nothing has materialized yet. Here's my advice, he says, about what is best for you in this matter. Last year you were the first not only to give but also to have the desire to do so. Now, he says, finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it. In other words, put your money where your mouth is. Do what you promised a year ago. We've got a modern expression that uh, we sometimes use, which I think Paul would ap appreciate. We talk about someone not willing to come to the party. I think that's what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. He's saying, why don't you come to the party? It is a party. I think that's what he means by that little phrase in verse 10 when he says, I, he talks about what's profitable for you, what's best for you. In other words, he's saying, you don't know what you're missing out on by your stinginess and your... Do you see what he's saying? He's saying giving is good for you. It, it's, giving is fun. I, I heard of uh, well, a friend of mine who was preaching in Africa uh, in, 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 in a church where the congregation runs down to the front. Well, actually dances down to the front with their offerings. It's hilarious. That's literally the word that he uses in verse uh, 7 of chapter 9. He says, the Lord loves a cheerful giver, but the word is hilarious. <laughs> Taking up an offering in church, and we don't do that, we do it online, it should be hilarious. <laughs> it's a fun thing, it's a party thing. Uh, Tony Campolo in one of his books, I um, can't remember which one now, but he talks about his, his little son who he took to Coney Island. Um, they rode everything that was still in operation there in the fun park. And this is what he says. All afternoon we laughed and screamed until we were exhausted. I told him, it's time now for us to head home. He said, I want one more ride on the roller coaster. I rejected that, but he didn't give up. Look, he said, I think Jesus wants me to go on that ride one more time. That's a new approach, I thought. Where did he get that from? <laughs> How, why did you say that? Well, he, you, you tell us in your sermons that whatever we feel, Jesus feels. You say that when we feel sad, Jesus is sad. And I, and I just thought that if Jesus feels what we feel, then when I'm having a good time, so is he. And I think he'd like another ride on the roller coaster. <laughs> Hard to argue with the logic of that, isn't it? <laughs> but that's exactly it. It's a roller coaster ride. Christianity is it's not some boring humdrum coming to church because I've got to. It's a roller coaster ride. It's a fun thing. And, and Paul wants the Corinthians to discover the thrill of giving. He, he wants them to experience the adrenaline rush of giving more than they can afford. He's coaxing them onto God's roller coaster. He's pleading with them to come to the party for their own good to join in the hilarity of giving and receiving. See, if I can put it this way, Paul has a pastoral concern for the Corinthians, not, not a pecuniary interest in them. It's not like some of these, you know, mega pastors who rip off their congregations. No, he hasn't got a pecuniary interest in them. He's got a pastoral concern for them. Robert Murray McShane, uh, in, in a sermon to his people in Dundee in Scotland, said this. He said, if you don't love to give, then you're not a Christian at all. 
Hold on to your money. Give none of it away, for I tell you, you will be beggars for all eternity. That's really strong stuff, isn't it? Very forceful. But then he goes on to say in the very next breath, ah, but my friends, don't you see? It's not your money I want. It's your happiness, your joy. Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive. I don't want your money. I want your blessedness, your happiness. That's what Paul is saying here in verse 10. It's profitable for you. So do you see what he's doing? He's coaxing the Corinthians onto the roller coaster of giving. Now, how do you convince people of that? How do you persuade people to give when they don't really want to? <laughs> well, notice Paul does two things here in this chapter. We're, going to look, we're looking especially at chapter 8, but we will jump over into chapter 9 a, a little bit. He does two things. He points, first of all, to the outrageous example of the Macedonians. Uh, now, that's a bit like uh, New South Wales pointing to Tassie. Every country has its equivalent of that. For the British, it's the Irish. Uh, I say that because it's usually the Welsh, but I don't like uh, to think it's the Welsh. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, for the Australians, I'm afraid to say it's the Tasmanians. And for the Greeks, it, it was the Macedonians. <laughs> they're the people with two heads. <laughs> they're the, they're the, uh, the northerners, the hillbillies, the unsophisticated ones. Look at them, Paul says. They're bonkers. <laughs> they're insane. Look at them. They begged us. They pleaded with us. They wouldn't take no for an answer, like a, a child pleading for one more ride on the roller coaster. They just can't stop themselves from giving these crazy Macedonians. They are spectacularly generous. They're grace junkies. They're addicts. They're hooked on giving. Don't you see? Now, what can we learn from that? Well, we learn how to give sacrificially. You, you've heard... Um, the old joke about the pig and the chook and the good old English breakfast with bacon and eggs. You know that. It's an old dad joke, isn't it? <laughs> Preacher, preacher's joke. Uh, what's the difference between the, the pig and the chook? Well, the pig, uh, the chook makes a contribution to the breakfast and the pig makes a sacrifice. That's right, isn't it? And that's the difference between the Corinthians and the Macedonians. It's as simple as that. The Corinthians, it seems like they're, they're willing to make a contribution, though they're taking a long time about it. It's 12 months now, and they still haven't come up with the money. But the Macedonians are willing to sacrifice. See what it says there in verse 2? They, they gave out of their what? Out of their reserves? Out of their savings? No, do you see what it says there in verse 2? They gave out of their severe trial and extreme poverty. See, in that world, you had to belong to a trade guild to get a job. And the conditions of membership made it impossible for a Christian to get a job. So... Christians in Macedonia faced unemployment and grinding poverty. But instead of self-pity or self-preservation, which would have been understandable, look what it says there in verse 2. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Isn't that bizarre? They don't use their poverty as an excuse. On the contrary, they beg Paul to let them give more. They want to repay God for the honor that he's given them of suffering for Christ. They want to contribute to this fundraising project of Paul's. They want to have fellowship with the, 
the saints in Jerusalem in their need. It's very challenging, I think, when you read these verses. So are we, are we Macedonians or Corinthians in our giving? Are we pigs or chooks? Do we give sacrifici sacrificially? Or are we just making a contribution when we think about it or when we're reminded about it? Do we, do we miss what we give? Does it hurt us to give? See, and not only do they give uh, sacrificially, but notice they give spontaneously. Or, or I should say voluntarily, entirely of their own volition, it says in verse 3. See, no one is laying a guilt trip on them. Paul isn't twisting their arm or sending them beg begging letters. On the contrary, they're, they're begging him. It's, it's not what we were expecting, Paul says. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. See, the, see where this is coming from? It's coming, it's coming from their devotion to the Lord. That's where it's coming from. It's coming from their love for Jesus. Someone has said about these Macedonians that theirs is not the calculated thriftiness of an accountant, but the almost irrational extravagance of a lover. It wasn't just money they were giving. They were giving themselves to the Lord. Thomas Chalmers calls it the expulsive power of a new affection. It's more than generosity. It's more than philanthropy. It's not tithing. It's the overflow of the grace of God in their hearts. Don Carson says, when you stand beside the cross, it's hard to be selfish, isn't it? When you know how much Christ has given up for you, it's hard to play safe. Love so amazing, so divine, demands the loose change in my pocket. Love so amazing, so divine, demands 10% of my income. No. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. The Macedonians understood that. They gave sacrificially, above and beyond what they were able to afford. They gave spontaneously. No one forced them to give. But notice they didn't give sporadically. Look, look what Paul says in verse 7 of chapter 9, just over the page there. Each one must give, he says, as he has decided in his heart. In other words, our giving needs to be thought through. It needs to be thought out carefully. It, it needs to be planned prayerfully. And it needs to be regular and systematic. Uh, at the end of his first letter in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 2, Paul tells them, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. Regular, systematic, thought out, prayed over giving. So let me ask you, <laughs> I'm asking myself this as well, do, do we ever stop to think about our giving? That's one of the problems, of course, when giving has gone online, that you can, you can set what you give and you don't have to think about it again. On the first day of the week, you should think about this. Every week. These Macedonians, they gave quite independently of their circumstances. I, I want to say it doesn't matter what your circumstances are. I know our, 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 change, our, our lives change from time to time, and... There are different demands on, on, on us financially. But whether you've got a mortgage or not, whether you have a regular income or you're on Social Security, 
whether you've got, you're on a pension or you're on pocket money, the principle still applies. John Wesley learned as a young man back in the 18th century that he could live on 28 pounds a year. That would be the equivalent of about $18,000 in today's money. Not a lot of money. <laughs> and as he got older and he, he wrote books and he traveled, his salary grew much larger and his income increased dramatically, but he continued to live on 28 pounds a year for the rest of his life. Because he could live on 28 pounds a year and he gave the rest away. It's very challenging, isn't it? Christian giving is sacrificial. It's spontaneous, it's, it's systematic, and it's, I want to say this as well, it's spiritual. See, there's so much needing to be done. We just called a pastor. Soul Church is, a, I think it's a beautiful church. It's a growing, healthy church. That outreach yesterday was so encouraging. And there's so much, so many opportunities we, we could take here in, in, in Hobart. So much needing to be done. So many opportunities going begging. Where, where do you get the money from? For, for a small church like ours, where are we going to get the money from to seize all these opportunities? What I want to say to you, friends, for your encouragement, we don't have a financial problem. It's a spiritual problem that we have. God's got plenty of money lying around in the pockets of his people. The question is, how do you get people to give when they don't want to? Now, do you see what Paul does? He doesn't get out his flow charts and his graphs. He doesn't stick a whacking great thermometer outside the church building. He doesn't beg people for money. He doesn't introduce a stewardship campaign. He doesn't tell them to tithe. He doesn't show them a video of the famine in Jerusalem to, to tug at their heartstrings. What does he do? He points them to Jesus. He preaches the gospel to them. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, he says, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. See, what is it about those two slides up there on the screen? Well, there's been a lot of talk in recent times, hasn't there, about uh, global warming and the melting of the polar ice cap. And we've seen these massive ice, these massive glaciers floating free in the Southern Ocean. Now imagine, imagine chipping away at one of those glaciers. You could be chipping away forever and make no impression on it. And isn't it amazing when the sun comes out, the ice melts, and the sea level rises? And isn't that what happens? When the sun of righteousness comes out in the preaching of the gospel? Isn't that what happens? When the note of grace is struck in the preaching of the gospel, isn't that what happens? See, the gospel does what the law cannot do. It melts icy hearts. It's hard work raising funds and getting people to give. But when the sun shines, the ice melts and the sea levels rise and the offering goes up when the gospel is preached. So please be praying for, for, for Pete that he will week in, week out, preach the gospel. And you'll never grow tired of hearing about the grace of God, about the one who is rich beyond all splendor, but for our sake became poor. You see, what motivates Christians to give is grace, not guilt. It's the gospel, not the law. I'm not laying down the law, Paul says in verse 8. Do you see that there? I'm not saying this as a command. I'm not making this a condition of church membership that you have to give a tithe. That's the law. We're not under the law. We're under grace. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't give a tithe. He gave his all. Not even God's 
God a greater gift could give, nor heaven itself a dearer boon impart. When Jesus came and died that I might live, God gave without reserve his very heart. Now let me say four things by way of application. Money matters. How much does it matter? Well, the first thing is this. It's a matter of worship. Uh, in chapter 9 there, over the page, in verses 12 and 13, he calls it a service. But the, the word that he uses is liturgy. Paul is talking about a fund for famine relief, and he calls it worship. Do you see that there? It's not the only place where he does this. Worship is not simply singing. It's giving. It's much easier to get people to sing than to give, isn't it? Especially when you've got a good bunch of musicians like we've got here at Soul Church. Maybe, just maybe, the treasurer's report is a more accurate barometer of our worship than the songs that we sing or don't sing. I think that's what he's saying. Maybe the annual budget is a better indication of how much we really worship God. Maybe one of the reasons Christianity goes limping along here in Australia is because there's far too little worship in the offering box. It's a matter of worship. Money matters. It's a matter of worship. In the Reformed tradition, uh, the collection, the offering is taken up in the middle of the service as part of the worship. It's a matter of worship. And then secondly, it's a mark of discipleship. Look what it says in verse 8 of chapter, uh, chapter 8. I, he, Paul says, I want to test the sincerity of your love. I want to know if you're fair dinkum about this. I want to see if you're for real. See, we like to think that we are, don't we? We like to think that we're generous, compassionate people. Don't always get around to giving the money uh, that I should all the time. I'm not very good at budgeting. I, I'm talking about myself now here. I can't use Excel. When, when Roger sends that Excel thing out, I get all lost in it. I don't, I don't trust internet banking. Uh, but my heart's in the right place. <laughs> Is it? Is it? See, when people who need my money haven't got my money, whether it's a, a pastor that we've committed to support or it's a sponsored child in Africa or, or a village in uh, Uganda waiting for clean water or a missionary in Thailand or a church plant down the road, there's only one reason. It's not because I'm disorganized. It's because I'm not like Jesus. I want to test the sincerity of your love, Paul says. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, don't you? How he was rich and yet became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. Is that what you're doing? Is that your discipleship? Is that how you live as a Christian? Are you impoverishing yourself in order to enrich others? That's what we're called to as disciples of Jesus impoverishing ourselves in order to enrich others. Are we really following Jesus? I want to test your sincerity, Paul says. Or is it just talk? You see, the Corinthians were great talkers. They prided themselves on being super spiritual. They boasted about it. They had, uh, you read the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, they, they were very proud of their gifts. They had all the gifts. <laughs> I remember when I was a pastor in London, I remember there was a girl who came from Adelaide to London, and she'd used up all her savings to go to a conference in the south of England to learn how to speak in tongues. And I'm really glad to say I persuaded her out of it. She's remained a friend for well, the last 30 years. She lives in Canada now. 
and we get a Christmas letter. Just had, the reason I said that, we just had a letter from her this week. You know, it's, there are all sorts of, you know, it's easy to, people go to conferences about how to speak in tongues. They, there'll be conferences about worship. There'll be conferences about preaching the Bible and all sorts of conferences that Christians get excited about. But I, I don't think I've heard very many uh, conferences that have been organized around the gift of generosity. And you see what Paul is saying here? Since you excel in everything, you Corinthians, I think he's, he's tongue-in-cheek, I think he's being a bit sarcastic here, because they were very proud of their gifts. Since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, see that you excel in this act of grace as well, he says. See, money matters. It's a matter of worship, and it's a mark of our discipleship. And it's a means of growth, that's the third thing. Because this is how we grow. This is how Christians grow. This is how churches grow. By giving themselves away. Somebody has said, um, giving is not God's way of raising money. It's God's way of raising children. Look at verse 6 of chapter 9. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. There's a principle there. John, uh, John Bunyan the man who wrote Pilgrim's Progress said, a man there was and some did count him mad. The more he gave away, the more he had. Well, now that is, that is literally the case sometimes. And it shouldn't surprise us either because who is God going to entrust with money? People who know what to do with it in a godly way. The gift of generosity is a gift that God gives to his church. But who does God give that gift to? Those who've learned how to give it away. And it's not just money. You look at verse 10 of chapter 9. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You see, there are all sorts of dividends that come from generosity. When you sow in dollars, you get back in godliness. Giving purges the soul of greed and selfishness. Giving grows Christians to maturity and churches to usefulness. So money matters. It's a matter of worship. It's a mark of discipleship. It's a means of growth. And then finally, it's a measure of belonging. See, Jerusalem was hundreds of miles away from Corinth, in distance and, and in ethos. They were Jews. They're Jews. We're Gentiles, the Corinthians could have said. Uh, they don't even belong to the same denomination as us. Why should we help them? Because now, through the cross of Christ, there is no Jew or Gentile. That's, that was the beautiful thing about yesterday in the park, just around the corner there. Three churches. Seoul, Cornerstone, Hobart. Uh, um, what's it? Hope. Hope Church. Three churches just seamlessly, just working together to bring the gospel into that park. That's the communion of the saints. It's in the creed. You know, I believe in the communion of the saints. What is the communion of the saints? Well, it's, um, is it some kind of spooky connection with the disembodied spirits of the dear departed? Is that what you understand the communion of the saints to be? No, 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 no. It's far more down to earth than that. It's a question of equality, Paul says there in verses 13 and 14, isn't he? He said, I'm not trying to, to enrich Jerusalem at the expense of Corinth. I'm trying to equalize the burden. At the present time, your surplus is available for their need. But there'll come a time when their abundance may also become available for your need. 
so that there'll be equality. This isn't communism. Communism is really um, what's yours is mine. Christianity is what's mine is yours. That's what he's talking about here. And what do we know about that? Things are very unequal in our world, aren't they? And even in the church. You just think of the way that the vaccines have been distributed around the world. All the wealthy countries are 90% vaccinated. But in Africa, in India, well, certainly in Africa, right down. In the church, think about the church. Where is the church, where is Christianity growing? It's in Africa, in Latin America, in China in a very big way, in Southeast Asia, not here. We're stagnating, we're going backwards here, aren't we? But where are all the resources? Where's all the money? Where are the church buildings and the theological seminaries and the books and the Bible colleges? Here. Isn't there something wrong with that? Don't we belong to each other? Don't we owe it to one another to share our resources so that the gospel might get out into the world? Isn't that what we mean by the communion of the saints? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Paul's teaching here on this important topic of money. Lord, we thank you that uh, it's not a matter of law or guilt or anything like that. We, we pray, Lord, that we might be challenged uh, just through this talk tonight to be more in love with Jesus and less in love with ourselves. We pray, Lord, that you turn us inside out and give us a, a, a generous spirit. Uh, we, we thank you for the local church, for this local church. We know, Lord, that it is through the local church that you carry out your purposes in this world and in this city. And so we pray, Lord, that uh, we might... that we that we would bring in our tithes and offerings and that you would open up and pour out such a blessing upon us that we will not be able to contain it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.